Well, um, we had a staff meeting, and uh, it's been so long since I've been on Wednesday night because it's just been um, the month of August was kind of busy, and uh, so I they told me that I that I hadn't taught out of Second Timothy, and I'd finished First Timothy, so I thought I'll do Second Timothy, but I have taught out of Second Timothy because I started going through it. I go, I just taught this. I know I just taught this. So uh, we're in Titus tonight. I'm going to start in Titus. So turn to the book of Titus, and uh, we'll start with that tonight. We're going to take a look at it. Uh, Timothy, which we've covered, was um, a disciple of Paul's. We've already gone through his life. Titus, as well, is a, a disciple of Paul's. Um, but what's fascinating about Timothy and Titus, <clears throat> you can find Timothy in the book of Acts recorded, but you don't find anything about Titus in the book of Acts. He's not listed anywhere in there. But we know a lot about him, and he actually, um, and, and I don't know why Luke didn't include him in the book of Acts, because his, his ministry with Paul was concurrent with everything that was happening in the book of Acts. Um, especially around Acts 15, we find a reference to Titus in Galatians 2, which ties in with the exact time in Acts 15. So he really should have been listed in some capacity. 2 Corinthians 8, uh, we find uh, Titus mentioned. Um, so he really should have been in that capacity somewhere in the book of Acts, but he wasn't. Um, some thoughts on Titus before we get into the the first few verses of it. I want to read to you about him. Uh, these are things written by others in regards to Titus. Um, um, he's strangely absent from the record, though he must have been an associate of Paul during the time covered by Acts. We read about him in 2 Corinthians 2.13, 8.23, 2 Corinthians 8.18, 2 Corinthians 12.18. Both say that when Titus was sent to Corinth, another brother was sent with him, uh, described in former passages as a brother who is famous among all the churches and commonly identified with Luke. Uh, it has been suggested that Titus was Luke's brother, which could possibly be true. Um, can't confirm that. Though we read nothing about Titus in Acts, we still know something of his character and personality because the scriptures declare that. And I'll give you a couple of them. One was that he was a genuine brother to the apostles. You find that in 2 Corinthians 2.13 that he was a partner and fellow worker. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians 8.23. Titus walked in the same spirit as Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.18. Titus walked in the steps of Paul in the same manner of life, 2 Corinthians 12.18. Uh, Titus could be a pattern to other believers um, because uh, the Lord will list this uh, as we go through the study of Titus. And then I like what Spurgeon said. He said, Titus, he seems to have been a man of great common sense, so that when Paul had anything difficult to be done, he sent Titus. When the collection was to be made at Corinth on behalf of poor saints at Jerusalem, Paul sent Titus to stir the members up, and with him, another brother to take charge of the contributions. And so um, we also know that What's occurring right now is Titus is in Crete, and he's taking this letter, uh, or Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Titus is in Crete. He's ministering to the brethren on this island of Crete. Paul more than likely got to Crete in, in his missionary journeys. Um, and the way that uh, a letter's written is you open it up, and it'll, it'll uh, say who it's addressed to, and then it'll say who it's from. Uh, and it'll give a simple greeting because it was rolled up and, and you can't wait to get to the end to see who it's from before you want to read it. So you want to see who's at the beginning of it and then who it's for so that you keep it private and then you can read through it. And it was to be passed around to this church and it was a ministry and, and uh, this was the purpose of it. Um, going through the book of Titus, I, I guess a theme would be that God demands, um, 
good doctrine, and where there's good doctrine, he, he would demand good conduct. So if, if you're teaching good doctrine, the byproduct has to be good conduct. There can't be, as uh, Micah prayed, uh, that, that we would take the word to heart. Uh, you, you come on a Wednesday night, you just sit, and you're just trying to stay awake through uh, the middle of the week, and uh, it's just something to do and be around people, and, and the word you know makes a little bit of sense. But if it, there's not transformation in our life where we apply, uh, don't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This idea of good doctrine produces good conduct. Good doctrine produces good conduct. And, and, and Paul's going to emphasize this in the letter to, to Titus. He's going to lay this out and make it very clear. Um, and then also these Cretans where, uh, and it's fascinating because it's going to talk about truth. Uh, these Cretans, there were the three C's in the Roman Empire. The, the Cretans, the Sicilians, and the Cappadocians. They were three groups of people C's within the Roman government that you didn't trust them at all. Uh, a Cretan couldn't be trusted. Uh, they, they were lying scumbags um, in the Roman Empire. And, um, and Timothy values, or excuse me, Titus values the truth, and he's pouring into these folks. This is a tough place to be ministering. And, um, and, the, and on the island of Crete, there's obviously, you know, I think one-sixth um, of, of the Roman population was slave, if not more. And so um, they're going to be talking about slavery in this, this, this term Paul's going to use at the beginning of Titus is a, a term we're going to see common in, um, in Paul's writing. So I think that's good enough for an introduction. And uh, let's take a look at the passage, Titus chapter 1. Let me pray before we read. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And as we undertake a study of this letter to Titus, Lord, uh, that our hearts would be in submission to your word, that this good doctrine that you have provided to us would produce good conduct and that we would take it to heart and allow it, this living word of yours, to transform our lives, cause us to come alive to your word. We thank you that your word is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask, Lord, tonight that you would do a mighty work in our lives. Thank you for the men and women who came tonight to receive the riches of your word. Bless the fruit of their, their faithfulness. And I pray, God, that all of us together would glow, grow closer to you and that uh, our hearts for one another would, would grow strong and the unity of the body would be evident to all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's take a look at it. I'm going <clears throat> to cover the first four verses tonight. Um, it's 7.31. We get out of here, what, usually 8.30? We're going to get out early. Maybe. (laughs) Let me read through the first four verses, and then I'll go verse by verse on the way back through. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. So there you see good doctrine, good conduct, right? In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, we'll take a look at that, Promise before time began. So before there was ever a click on the clock, uh, God promised this. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which is what's happening tonight, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And then he says, who it's to, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. So that's going to be kind of the the gist of the passage tonight. 
And uh, I'm just going to breeze through uh, the first portion because you've, you've probably heard this introduction because any epistle, uh, any letter that Paul writes usually includes the same things that you're seeing here in verse 1. He gives his name, Paul. He used to be Saul. Saul means big. Paul means little. He's humbled. Um, and then he uses this term bondservant, which uh, the, the Greek word is doulos. It's um, under rower. It's the guy who, who holds the oar on the bottom of the Roman ship. He doesn't know where he's going. Uh, he doesn't know who's in command. All he knows is he's supposed to row. He doesn't have a name. He has a number. He just moves the ship forward. He's the energy, um, and, and that's his job. He is the under rower. He's the bond slave, which is another translation. He's the bond slave. It's the, it's the lowest form of slavery, um, this word doulos, in the Roman Empire. Anyone using this term would immediately associate with it. He's saying, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. Now, I'll stop there for a minute because even though we've gone through this term doulos, we talk about under rower, we talk about the guy who's in the, uh, the, the Roman gal, uh, what's the ship, the, gal, the galley? Yeah. And even though he's the one down below rowing and, and, and is just the, in a sense, just nameless energy um, doing someone else's bidding, that's really what a slave is. Somebody works all day to benefit somebody else. And we, we've gone through this. You, you've, you've seen the, the illustrations that I think Congressman McEwen does where, you know, the, the, greater, the, the, the greater the choices, the greater the freedom. Now, when you're chained to a, an oar and a bottom of a ship, you don't have any choices. And if you don't row, they whip you. You have one choice, row or die. Have you ever seen Ben-Hur? It's the same thing, row or die. And that's what slavery is. And it's, it's, it's the world's mode of, of operation to enslave you. Christ came that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Satan has come to enslave, to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. He wants to steal your future. He wants to steal your options. He wants to steal your identity. He hates that you've been created in the image of God, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what anyone who enslaves someone else does. They labor on behalf of someone else. And so you're the machinery to make someone else happy. And so the sinful nature of man and government is they ultimately want you to be the source of their happiness so they can operate without having to do anything, and you're going to make it all work, right? And we talk about liberty and freedom. We've gone through this whole concept. And here, when Paul begins with this, this idea of slave, people related to that because the Roman Empire moved upon the backs of others. That was how it was generated. And it wasn't slaves that were indebted and owing money to Visa and had to go to work because, no, these were folks that were enslaved. And, and they owed their life and they, they had no choices other than to serve their master. And Paul describes this. So the, the minute he uses this term, everyone can relate to it because they either own slaves or were a slave or are a slave. Everyone is affected by slavery in the Roman Empire. I'll add this one other thing. Paul's going to use it in a spiritual context because he's going to say that, that I am a slave of God. Now, they know what it's like to be a slave of man. Everyone in the room knows what it's like to be a slave to man because you pay taxes, right? Okay, I thought that'd be funnier. You, the, listen, you, you go and you buy something and they take th between federal and gas taxes. That's a, great, that's a great one. You go to the pump and you buy gas. 
Now, California has the highest energy costs of any state in the union, 48% higher in Colorado, which is the next highest in the country. So we should, by all purposes, right, have the finest infrastructure and roads in America, right? My teeth are loose from driving on our roads. Our infrastructure's crumbling. We have 50-year-old roads. Our bridges are in danger of our infrastructure is awful and we pay the highest taxes of any state in the union. What, what is the problem? The problem is somebody has figured out a way that all you do is you go to the pump to buy gas to get to your work. And when you put it in and you go to pay, they take almost half of that. They did nothing. Nothing at all and it's theirs. And you just pay it willy-nilly and it goes to somebody. We don't know who. You go to Sacramento, you see the ziggurat, and you see all these amazing government buildings, and it's just spectacular. And yet, there's not enough taxes, and the infrastructure's crumbling. What's happening? Where's it going? What's that? By votes. And, and this is the idea where, as, as we've heard before, the greater the government, the smaller the citizen, the smaller the government, the greater it says, the greater the government, the the, the the greater the poverty, the greater, or the, 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 the greater the freedom, the greater the wealth. When you have choices, you can start to multiply that. And so here he uses the term slave of God. So we, we cover the government aspect of it. Let's look at another kind of idea of it. How about this? What are you a slave of? Spiritually speaking, what is it that drives you that you, you don't have a choice? It tells you where to go. Uh, even when you don't want to do it, you still have to because you're driven by it. You're a slave of sin. You're, you're a slave of that, that nature, that fallen nature, that you have to do it. You can't say no. When the Apostle Paul would write in Acts 20, he would say, none of these things move me. That's not, that's not us prior to knowing the Lord. We're moved by any. We're moved, we're moved by the prescription. We're moved by the bottle. We're moved by the video. We're moved by the fill-in-the-blank. I'm sorry, bacon. Amen. That works too. And, 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 the, and the bottom line is we're a slave to that because you don't have the ability to say no. You don't have the ability to say no. So you become a slave to sin. And then when, when Paul uses this term, a slave of God, this is what we covered on Sunday, a slave of God. It's real simple because the term a slave is under legal obligation to a master. Whether indebted or whatever it is, we are a slave to sin. We, we can't say no to this. And so we look at the law, and we've covered this. The world thinks that the law is having the freedom to choose. We don't have the freedom to choose. When we're left, when we're left to licentiousness, to our, our lowest base, which is sin, and there's no boundaries, we run to the least common denominator and we don't achieve anything. We just implode. Why do you think they don't allow alcohol to be sold near a school? Or, or you know, what? just all these bad things near schools. Because they want to leave the kids options to be able to avoid evil, to embrace the good so that they can seek excellence. We've covered this. So when you're a slave to sin, you, you are, that's licentiousness. You're a slave to that. You don't have the option to, to obtain excellence. 
all you can do is drink or drug or sex or that's it. And it just reduces to its least common denominator and you have no ability to, to change anything. And, and then the world implodes and we find ourselves deviated and struggling. And this is the whole picture. So God lays this down. And when Paul says, I am a slave of God, what he's saying is, I am now placing restraint towards evil, which is the law. It's the wise restraints that make men free. I am placing by the power of Christ, which you're going to see in a moment, I place restraint towards evil and I am a slave to good. I'm a slave to righteousness. What does that do for me? I obtain excellence because I avoid evil. I embrace good and I rise to a level where I am other-centered and capable of giving to a community and a society rather than taking and imploding. Because what? Sin, when fully conceived, produces what? Death. Death to a culture, death to a society, death to a family. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundant. So slave to Christ is submission to good forsaking evil. This is, this is a mind-boggling concept to the people that Paul's writing to. These are Cretans. They are lying, thieving, wicked human beings, and they're saying, wait a minute. You aren't a slave to having to lie? You, you, you talk about caliphates, you talk about Sharia law, and you talk about Islam. Islam is a system of government cloaked in a religious concept and the idea is that you you can you can lie you can cheat you can steal you can murder to protect your honor i can't fathom that it's all laid out there people dismiss isis and say well that's the high end of those are fundamentalists they are following they are following the quran and you lie, cheat, steal, and murder to protect your honor. Now, you bring a concept like this, that you are now no longer a slave to that sin. You're a slave to good. And you forsake evil. You forsake your lying and your deception and your murder. And he goes through this whole process, and these Cretans, as they read it, it's got to be baffling them. And the Lord says, He shall keep you in perfect peace, whose mind is steadfast on thee. Now, watch this. A slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent one. God has sent me to do this according to the faith of God's elect. And the concept of elect means that you have been chosen. Um, We can go through the whole Calvinism, Arminianism, free will, um, uh, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. There's a balance in there. I'm neither a Calvinist nor an Arminianist. I'm a Biblicist. I believe that that there isn't limited atonement. These are concepts that you can ask at another time. I don't really want to cover it tonight. I don't believe in limited atonement because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God would want that none would perish, but that all would be saved. Uh, I don't think Christ's death on the cross was limited to only the elect. I believe that that God is sovereign and man has a free will. How that's possible, I have no idea any more than I can explain the Trinity to you. I don't know. It's a mystery. He's eternal. We're temporal. Uh, You want me to explain an eternal God with a temporal mind? I can't do it. I'm going to get a headache and so will you. And, um, and, And I would like to think that I'm so smart that I could do this and put God in a box of, you know, sovereignty that binds him from not being able to step outside and then fold the scriptures to meet my limited concept of his, no, it, it just, there's a balance. I can't explain it. It's just there. We good with that? All right. 
And so um, he says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth. Now, they don't value the truth on the island of Crete. They're Cretans. They're liars. And, and he lays out that, that this is the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free from sin so that you can operate in the context of good. You forsake evil, embrace good, and you become a slave to righteousness as opposed to a slave to sin by the power of Christ in you. And, and this, this to the Cretans, they're saying, you mean, you mean that I don't, I, I'm, I don't have to sin? I will have the power by, the, by Christ to be a new creature in Christ, to forsake what has been common to me and an inability to walk away from, and now I, I can pursue righteousness? Yes. By the power of Christ, he will give you the ability. That what God has begun, he's faithful to complete. His grace is sufficient. You cry out to him. You say, God, you grant me mercy that I can move away from that sin. Thank you, Lord. And no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And when you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. And, and that's scripture. That's his promise. And so when the Lord lays out through the Apostle Paul's writing, he says, which accords with godliness. And then he adds this, and this is the concept that you have to hold true to, in hope. And I want you to focus on that idea, in hope. Hope of what? Eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That sentence right there is pregnant with insight. I don't know if I can give birth to it. It is, it, it is profound. He says to us, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope, in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie. Now this hope is fascinating. I, I put some scriptures in Romans because Paul's writing this and he gives the, the doctoral dissertation uh, of, of deep theological insight in Romans. And that's, that's one of those books you you got to really meditate on. But here in Romans 5, verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? You know, I, I, I hope, I hope for a million dollars. Or it's right in front of me. I don't have to hope for anything. I got a million bucks. You get the phone call from a friend. You have a debt, like, like uh, Chuck Smith used to say. He was short 400 and something bucks. And a friend calls and says, Lord, put you on my heart, Chuck. I'm sending you a check for $500. And Chuck takes his wife, Kay, and dances around the room with her and rejoices. And then he goes into his room to thank the Lord because he'd had to step out of the ministry if he didn't get that money. And he's just saying, thank you, Lord, thank you. And the Lord says, why are you dancing with Kay? Why are you so excited? He said, Lord, because my friend called. And he says, yeah, well, where's the money? He says, my friend, he's, he's trustworthy. He'll send it. He'll, he says, you know what bothers me, Chuck? And, and he said, what, Lord? He said, you weren't dancing with Kay last night when you had my word that I would meet your needs and the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. You're dancing now because a friend said he'd give it to you and you trust his word more than you trust mine. And that's heavy, because he's speaking of this hope and Paul's laying it out. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? 
we're, we're a peculiar crowd and that we're hoping in a salvation. And what is that salvation based on? Because we're, we're putting our lives to it. We're going, we're going on the edge and we're living in this capacity where we're going to suffer for the truth. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, because it's coming. Continuing steadfastly in prayer in the midst of the tribulation. Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We long for this hope. Hope is this idea of something that is coming. And it comes by a promise of a friend. I... I was, I, I was in great need, and that need hindered me from being with my dad who was dying, and I, I had to stay here because I had to resolve an issue. And a friend called and said, I have provision for that issue. Go be with your dad. Now, that provision hadn't been given. It was his word. And based on his word, I got in my car, and I drove to go be with my dad. But I had that provision long before he had ever called. I had it from the Lord. But God's word doesn't seem to move us as much as man's does. And that's hope. You know what hope is? Hope is looking at the promises of God and taking them at face value. I don't know that we do that. I think we, we go through, through struggles where we really doubt that... I, I wrote down a couple things. I actually did more, but I, I, for the sake of time, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I think we as people are used to broken promises, especially coming up to an election, right? How many people have been lied to? Someone promised you something and they didn't come through. Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have promised someone something and you didn't come through? Raise your hand. We suck. <laughs> this is awful. This is the world we live in. And how about, how many of you are parents that promised your kids something and didn't do it? Raise your hand. You know how devastating that is? I'm raising my hand, by the way. You're not helping me. Oh, oh, you're all perfect. Look at you. <laughs> devastating. Devastating. Um, Woodrow Wilson, running for office in 1916 against uh, Charles Evans Hughes, who was a Supreme Court justice. And um, Woodrow Wilson said, his slogan was, he kept us out of the war. And then he gets reelected because he had kept us out of the First World War. Within two months, we, were in, we had declared war on Germany through a declaration of war through Congress that Woodrow Wilson pushed through. And it was vile. And the death and destruction was horrendous. He broke that promise. Herbert Hoover, he was born on my birthday, August 10th, by the way. Herbert Hoover said, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And they elected him on that slogan. And he sent us into the greatest depression in the history of the United States of America that lasted all through the Roosevelt administration until the Second World War. Um, oh, this is, this, and you talk about FDR, who, who took over after Herbert Hoover. FDR said, I have said this before and I shall say it again, your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. <laughs> we go to Germany and Japan. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson said, I will not send ground troops into Vietnam. Two months after being elected, ground troops into Vietnam. Uh, remember George Bush Sr.? Read my lips. No new taxes. And, and this, is, this is common in politics. It's common in families. It's common in society. We, and I think we have every intention of keeping the promise when we make it. But 
here is where the difficulty lies. I like this statement. A promise is of no more value than it is the ability of the one who makes it to carry it through. It also includes a willingness to do so. I have a willingness to keep my promise when I make it. I just realized I've written a check I don't have the funds for. I was talking to Brett today. <clears throat> he's looking at my schedule, and he's, he's going through it, and he said, Rob, I'm real worried about this because in the next eight weeks, I'm going to be on the East Coast eight times um, each week back and forth. And, and I got council meetings, and I got an election, and I, my daughter's wedding's in two and a half months. Oh, gosh. And, and I'm, I'm looking at all this, and, and Brett says, I'm think, I think you're making a promise. That, you know, you, you've got to be careful that you're, gonna, you're writing checks you, you don't have the ability for others to cash. And I have a willingness to. I, I struggle saying no. It's, it's my problem. It probably comes with an addictive behavior. I'm not sure. But a promise is of no more value than is the ability of the one who makes it to carry it through. Yeah, we're all limited creatures, yes? You, you have a promise. I just sent you a text, didn't I? I mean, you made that a year ago, didn't you? Yeah. It was for your son, right? right? My grandson. We were 50-50 on this. And we, we, we entered into this thing where we're going to put $5,000 a year into an account for Oliver so that when he's a certain age, he's going to have good crop of money. I did the first five, and, or first 2500 and he did the 2500 and now it's due. And I got the bill, and I'm like, oh, there's two weeks behind. Okay, you got yours? I don't have mine. I don't have mine either. That's his dad. I'm his grandpa. But you you see that? Do you see how pathetic I am? No. (laughs) And, and, And we don't have that ability right now. We, we have a willingness. I would love to bless him. I just didn't prepare for it for one reason or another, and it came due, and I'm not there. Does God have that problem? Is he ever broke? Do we struggle with his promises? Yeah. Why? He said he'd meet your needs. That's why we struggle. I want my wants met. I want my wants met. Now, look at this hope. This hope is a promise. And what is a promise? Eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, who cannot lie. I I don't know about you, but I'm pretty stoked on that. He cannot lie. There's one thing I can do that God can't do. Who's with me on that? I can do something God can't do. I can let all of you down. I can let Oliver down. God won't, but I do. You have the ability to do something God can't do. He cannot lie. There's there's no possible way for God to lie. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. Hebrews chapter 6. Now, before I read in Hebrews chapter 6, if you'd look up here, I want to put it into perspective. The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So God, God wants us to, to operate according to this, this 
this good doctrine and follow it by good conduct, godliness. And, and what motivates us is the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, before there was a click on the clock, God promised this. Before anyone was born, before time entered. When did time enter? When sin entered. Why? Because for sin to exist, or need, or excuse me, for time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. That's time. There will be an end to time. Time is when God comes back and separates the sheep from the goat and he says, okay, it's over. You're eternally there and you're eternally here and time is over and we all step into that. But he gives us time. Time is grace. Time is, is the ability for us to be reconciled to God while the clock is ticking. It's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. And, and you have that opportunity to repent and turn to godliness because you've gotten good doctrine and now you can get good conduct. And that good conduct is based on a hope. A hope of what? Eternal life. What kind of eternal life? Eternal life that was promised before time began. And that's a promise. And that is a promise you can take to the bank because the source of that promise has the ability to fulfill it. He cannot lie. Now, Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 13. And before we do that, one more thing. The Apostle Paul's writing this letter. And he's already suffered shipwreck. And he understands what it's like to be adrift in the ocean because he's, he's been shipwrecked a number of times. And watch what he writes in Hebrews 6. Now, some people say he didn't write Hebrews. I think this is the one passage that declares his authorship. And I think he removed his hand because he didn't want it to hinder Jews reading it because it was written to Jews. He says in verse uh, 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as what? An anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting out of Genesis when Abraham was told that your descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And he says, Lord, I don't have an heir. My wife is in her 90s. It, I mean, is it going to come through my servant? No, it's going to come through you and through, through Sarah. He says, Lord, I, I, he's, I need a promise. He says, all right. He says, we're going to cut a covenant. He tells him to get certain animals and, and he, he cuts them in half and he lays the parts on either side. And everyone knows exactly what he's doing in that culture that you're cutting a covenant. You're taking an animal, you're cutting it like with a chainsaw. Ring, ding, ding, ding. And you cut it right in half. And as you cut it in half, the blood from the carcass, if you've ever seen an animal bleed that's dead and you've been to a butcher shop with blood everywhere, just drip. I mean, it is. there's so much blood in a human body. There's so much blood in an animal and it's just pouring out. And, and the two people, John, stand up. The two people, as the, 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 these are the two portions of the animal. The blood is pouring down in the center. We would hold hands and we'd walk through the blood. And what we're saying to one another is, if you break this promise, and then he hits me and says, you break this promise, may this happen to us. We die. We swear by death 
that we promise to one another. And so Abraham has cut the covenant. He's waiting for the Lord to arrive. Now the buzzers start to show up. These are the doubts and the evil of, of Satan doubting God's word and his promise. He's trying to brush the buzzards away. He's trying to do his best. He says, stop it, stop it, stop it. And the exhaustion of fighting, he falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, the scripture says that a fire pot, which is the Lord, passes through the pieces without Abraham. It's just the Lord. And the Lord says, Abraham, I don't need you to keep my promise. Let, let God be true and every man a liar. I said it, I'll do it. You rest. I'll take care of it from here. And when God says there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's a promise. That God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. That's a promise. When God says, I'll meet your needs in the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you ask or imagine, that's a promise. When God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his grace is sufficient for us in our time of need, that's a promise. He's made provision for our salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. I mean, you can go through God has promised his children that they won't be overtaken by temptation. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man, he'll keep you from falling, it says in Jude. And, and, and he'll present you before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Darius, king of the Medes, said to Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually will deliver thee. Even, even he knew that Daniel's God was faithful as he was in the lion's den. He knew that. God has promised us victory over death. Acts 2.32, 1 Corinthians 15.3, God has promised that all things work together for good. Romans 8.28, God has promised that those who believe in Jesus are baptized for the forgiveness of sins, they will be saved. Mark 16.16. 16. You know, that all things work together for good, good that's an amazing promise. I, I List the miserable things that have happened in your life and God promises by hope that he'll work those things together for good. God has promised eternal life, John 10, 27, 28. These are promises you can take to, the, take to the bank. And so, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I'll bless you, and multiplying, I'll multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham didn't patiently endure. Do you guys remember the story? What did he do when he got to Egypt? He lied to Pharaoh. What did he do when he got to Canaan? And there was drought in the land. He went to Egypt. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. He told him to go to Canaan. He, he, he brought uh, Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, did a child with her. God never said that. Became Ishmael, which is crazy today because we're the benefactors of his stupidity. And yet the scripture declares that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all disputes. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it says he patiently endured. Here's the beautiful thing about the Lord when he says, I will cast your sins as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. He blots out your transgression so all he sees is what he did. And all he says is, well, Abraham patiently endured. In the span of eternity, it's patient. My grace is sufficient. It covers the multitude of your sin. When I see you, Abraham, I see you in my son's blood. There's no stain of unrighteousness in you. Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he observed the law. He was made righteous because he believed God. And what is that belief? It's hope. And what is that hope? Eternal life. What hope do you have apart from that? 
What hope does this world offer you apart from a relationship with a God who promises to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and give you a right standing with the God of the universe? Who promised before time began and you who have this masterful design of what you think this chaos is all about, you still can't explain time. And your heart's getting weaker and disease is growing and it's coming for you. We've got a defibrillator back there. It may not work this time. But the question is, what's your hope? Because you can't see beyond death. Oh, I got a pocket full of nickels and I'm wearing purple and there's going to be an asteroid that's going to come get me. That's what you're banking on? I'm going to dissolve into matter and I'm going to read and I'm going to just float and I'm, there's, it's nothing. Everyone has death in common. Death reigns on this earth and that's your answer? Well, I'm going to have different lives. I'm going to come back and reincarnate in a different... And I'm sure, what were you pre- previous? And I don't know about you, but that seems like hell to me. I don't want to come back to this. Could you imagine going back to junior high again? How awful that would be? And yet, God makes this promise, thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God promised it. He cannot lie. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way and the what? He cannot lie. There is truth. We trust him. Now, this is dangerous. I'm almost finished, and we'll conclude in a moment. He says in verse 2 of Titus 1, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So I have to go where the gospel isn't taught so that people will know the truth and the truth will set them free. How will they know unless someone tells them? Paul's an apostle. He's a preacher. He says, Titus, you're a son in our common faith. I'm entrusting this task to you as well. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I'm going to lay out some things for you, but you're going to get a task. This, this good doctrine is going to produce good conduct in their lives that need to be told that there is a truth and there is a God who cannot lie, who has given eternal promises that these people can all trust in, that, that this, this doctrine will transform their lives in a very profound way and transform the world as we know it. He's going to give it to a church that is under persecution, that the Pax Romana is going to just put its boot on the neck of every believer throughout the Roman Empire. And the church is going to be tested. And you know what? You'll never appreciate a promise until you desperately need it. And hope is so necessary in those times of crisis when a promise is made from someone you trust.
You know how grateful I was that that friend called me and said, go see your dad? What it meant to me? And yet God had given that to me long before. I share this with you and I'm going to close with one verse tonight. As you know, I've been gone on Wednesdays. I was in Uganda. Uh, my dad died. I was gone with that. Uh, had the Huckabee event, a number of other things. My very first day back, full day back at the office to handle stuff that had piled up was Tuesday. And I, I was stacked like airplanes coming into LAX. Just And I had a council meeting that night. And we'd been off for a month, and so I still had to go through the book. I had so much to do. And I had a couple of drop-ins that just... And I get, I get a text from a man who's bedridden. And I, I'm going to tell you his name because he's a brother and he'll appreciate this because it was really profound what God did. His name's Todd Bauer. Todd used to be high executive with Countrywide Homes. I think he was a CFO. I can't remember exactly. Flew on their Gulfstream, Porsches driving over Canaan Road, biggest state. He was a top 1% of 1% of earners in the country, right? And he's just and faithful to the Lord and his wife loves Jesus and his kids all walk with the Lord. I know no greater joy than see my kids walk with the Lord and he's at Calvary Community and he ties to the penny and above and he's generous and pouring into lives of people. Bible studies and quads and, and you know, Iron Shark ISI groups and just faithful and, and part of a larger church here in town where he was in an executive position to help. Unbelievable. And then crisis strikes. I don't know the disease he has, but I can describe it to you. The worst pain that a human being can endure, whatever the level is, turn it all the way up. There's no drug on the planet, fentanyl, Demerol, there's nothing that they can give him to make the pain go away. 24-7, 365, even while he sleeps, it is excruciating. The disease manifests itself, starts to flatten his nails, starts to take control of his body. He's bedridden in pain every single day. A pain that's unimaginable to most of the people in the room. Maybe once or twice for a brief moment we've experienced the level of that. It's like having your femur broken or being in labor endlessly. That's the pain. He's laying in bed. He says, I need to see you. I, I, paramedics came last night and I'm, I'm struggling. And I, I had about a 30 minute window before I had to get to the council meeting. I went home, got my suit on, drove over to his house and I sat down with him. And he is not lamenting. He's not complaining. He's, he's laying out some things. I'm in a lot of pain, a lot of da. But he's talking about the faithfulness of his son and his wife. And he's talking about the friends that had come over and the folks who had helped him off the floor after he collapsed. And talking about, you know, the Bible study and the many meets with and the folks that have been. And he says, but, you know, it's hard for people because they see me like this. And I'm not the guy that they knew. And this is my life now. It's this room. I can't even listen to music anymore. It doesn't do anything for me. He says, I feel like I'm losing my joy. And I say, wait a minute. Why do you feel? He goes, I don't feel joy. I go, yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They're all, they all seem to be feelings, don't they? He goes, yeah. I said, well, the idea of joy is Jesus first, others second, yourself last. So as I've sat with you, you have poured into me. You've talked about your family. And you've talked about the disease, but only how it's manifested itself and 
other areas and you've focused on the Lord and his faithfulness in the midst of it all, that the Lord's provided financially, he's provided for you with your family, he's taking care of all these things and you're rejoicing about how your son walks with the Lord and your kids walk with the Lord. Yeah. And his kids are amazing. His wife is amazing. And I said, there's joy. You have it. I said, when you were driving the Ferraris over, or the, the Porsches over Canaan, was that exhilarating? Was it an amazing feeling? He goes, yeah, unbelievable feeling. I said, I had a lot of feeling and void of substance. Yeah. And that's when you were the 1% of the 1% over here. A lot of feeling, void of substance. Now you're the 1% of the 1%. He goes, what, what percent is that? I said, that I not, may know Jesus Christ and him crucified and be acquainted with his suffering. I don't think anybody knows what you're enduring. I don't think anyone ever understood your wealth. And I don't think they understand your pain. And now you have no feeling, but you're filled with substance. Because you know what it's like to say, yea, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And I, and I looked at him and I said, all the people from that big giant church come to your house and they're baffled. And they're like Job's comforters. You've got to have done something wrong. And I said, Todd, you're a prophet. You're a harbinger of what the church is going to go through. And if you don't have a hope to take God who doesn't lie at his word, and you're going through that kind of pain, You won't last long. And when Paul's writing this, the boot of Rome is about to descend on the church. And they had a hope, just like Todd does. And he kept rejoicing in God's word and his heart would be elevated. And I have to share this with you. God does not lie. And when that pain dial increases and the trials come and the struggles and it doesn't go the way that you planned it, and as Governor Huckabee and, and the lady who spoke on Saturday spoke of, the detour now becomes the destination. And your world's upside down, and it's hard as hell. You're going to take great hope in these words from a God who does not lie. Revelation 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven. This is a voice that's true. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the fountains of water of life freely to him who thirsts. The world system is going to enslave you and kill you. Christ has come that you might know the truth and the truth will set you free. But you won't be delivered 
from pain. You will go through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will be with you. And his word, which is true because he cannot lie, will guide and direct and be a a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path. That's why God's word is so vital and why Paul wanted Titus to know that. Because Titus, all hell's going to break loose. And you got to know this. You know the first book of the Bible that was ever written? Job. Because you cannot embrace in the beginning God created until you can rest in the sovereignty of God that he can do as he pleases. But what he does is good, even when you don't understand it. And what he says is true. And you can bank on it. That's why God needed to get Job out of the way so that the rest of us could read in the beginning God created. And let God be true and every man a liar. God cannot lie. And that is our hope. And that is the word that you hold in your hand. Cherish it, hold it, believe it. Because that's the hope in a fallen world. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word, which is true. You'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more pain. These words are true. They're genuine. They're dependable. The presence of God is with men. Corruption shall put on incorruption. You will keep us in perfect peace. Lord, your word is so comforting and so true. And we're so grateful. For Jesus, you are the word. And you've come to dwell with man. Not just with us, but in us. Empowering us and setting us free. That we would walk in accordance with the truth of your word and praise your holy name. Strengthen us, Lord, that we would have hope to endure patient and affliction. That we would trust you through the trials of life, knowing that our hope is assured because your word is true, because God, you cannot lie. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.